So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 121. And once you're there, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. So Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word for us this evening. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us, that our thoughts and meditations and that our words would be uh, glorifying to you, Lord. We gather as a body to worship you. And so we pray that this scripture, this uh, text would help us to elevate and better glorify you in our worship. In your name, amen. So Psalm 121, uh, the title of this text is going to be The Keeper. Psalm 121 is part of the group of songs known as the Song of Ascents. Uh, just to give you a quick background on those songs, they are the ones that the Israelites would typically sing on their way to Jerusalem. So as they're traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover meal and for the Feast of Booths, what they would do is they would sing these as they, as they ascend towards the city. And so these, these feature, this section of songs features very many similar themes, similar ideas. Um, one of those ideas is lifting up your eyes to the hills. And that's how this song starts off. This song has been known as the traveler song or the soldier song. Uh, the, the core part of the text is about someone who's being preserved from danger by God. That's the core of the text is what it's talking about. So that's why it's known as the traveler song because a traveler on the road would need to rely on God in order to be protected. Or a soldier who's going into battle would need to remind themselves that their help comes not from their weapons or their strength or the amount of soldiers that they have on their side, but from God. And so that's why it was nicknamed that. But in all honesty, the best name or uh, addition to this song is that it's really the Christian song because the Christian is a pilgrim through this world from this life to the life to come. We travel always as wanderers until we arrive home. And we are soldiers in the army of God. And so we face dangers on all sides, many that we're not aware of even. And we need to remind ourselves to look to the Lord as our source of strength. Not philosophy, not reason, not understanding, not logic, not success, but to the Lord is where our help comes from. So as we outline this text, there's three main movements as we move through it. The first is a question. The question is seen right there in verse one. And then the bulk of the song is spent answering that question on a response. And you'll see that in verses two all the way through the end to verse six. And then lastly, the psalmist closes with a promise. So we see the question, a response, and then a promise. So the first thing, if you look with me in verse one, we'll read, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? This is the question, the primary question that is being asked and answered throughout this song. From where does my help come? As we look at this text, the answer to this question is what Christians live and die by. 
This is what Christians live and die by. From where does my help come? We have a frame to this question. So the, the line right above that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? So the psalmist is first looking at something and then meditatively asking himself a question. And there's a little bit of debate as to what the hills are. What are the hills talking about? Now, undoubtedly, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And so as it's a part of the Song of Ascents, you could think that someone who's going towards that holy city looks up to the hills, sees Jerusalem, and then reminds themselves that their help comes not from the city, not from the surrounding strength of man, but from God. Or they could look at Jerusalem and the hill could be a positive sense that they look at Jerusalem, the city on the hill, and they are reminded that it is God's holy city. And therefore they're reminded that they look to the holy hill, God's hill, and that their help comes from God. So the hill could be either referring to Jerusalem or the hill could be referring to worldly powers. Some people have suggested that the hill actually refers to a dangerous place. So if you're a traveler walking through a, a hilly region, that's where you are most likely to be ambushed. You can think of the story of the Good Samaritan to, for a little bit of context there. But we know that this is not talking about a dangerous location because in verse one it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And that carries with it a sense of desire, a sense of longing. So you're looking not in fear, but with hope. So whatever you're looking at, you're looking with hope. So I lift up my eyes to the hills and then whatever the hills are referring to is something that is hopeful. And so then the question remains, is the hill referring to God? Is the hill a reminder of God and his strength? Or is the hill a longing for hope and it's a temptation away from God? It's looking to worldly powers for hope. And the psalmist has to then ask himself the question, from where does my help come? To give you a text that would support that second interpretation, Jeremiah 3.23, Jeremiah writes, Truly the hills are a delusion. The commotion on the mountains, truly in the Lord our God, is the salvation of Israel. So Jeremiah, using that same poetic expression of the hills, says the hills are a delusion. Look to God for hope instead. And so we might assume that this psalmist is using that phrase in a similar land, which is to say that the hills refer to earthly powers, things that could tempt the people of God away from trusting in God as a source of strength. And rather, they are to remind themselves to look to the Lord. And so the psalmist looks, sees a source of temptation, and then has to ask himself the natural question, from where does my help come? And that's a question that I said we live and die by. Our source of help, our source of strength is the thing that gets us through this life. The question is simply this, what is the source of safety for the journey of life? What is the source of assurance? What is the source of security that we have for the journey of life? What hope does man have looking out at the journey that they have ahead of them. Most of us are in our 20s, and we have a long life, Lord willing, to live. What is the source of hope that's gonna get you through tomorrow and the next day and the hard years and the good years? What is going to get you to the end of life? What keeps you? And so then we can ask ourselves the question, how does the world answer this question? What can we look to as a source of hope? I'll propose a few options so we can take a look at each of them in turn. First, we could look internally at ourselves. We could look and see the strength of the world around us and we could say, no, I don't look there for hope. Rather, I'm going to look internally. I'm going to look and see to know myself better, to know my desires better. And in fact, the better I know me, 
the better I'll be able to live my life to its fullest. These are things like personality tests, to know more about yourself so that it can inform your life. Is that your source of hope? The more you know you, if you're self-honest and self-reflective, you might recognize that you are a desperately sinful person. And so the more you know yourself, the digger you deep, the more hopelessness you're going to find. That's just reality. So we can't look internally at ourselves. There's no source of hope there. What about to government? To education, to social safety nets, to financial structures put in place? Can we look to government as a source of hope? Well, we can just survey even the last 2,000 years of history as the church has remained standing. Think about how many empires and nations have risen and fallen over that course of time. Governments that were superpowers and unchallenged in their day. And the Lord says that these are but pawns in his game. That Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all the empires of the, Jew of the Jewish age, they're nothing but who God commands them to be. Even today, superpowers that command nuclear warheads like the United States and Israel and Russia, they're not places you can look to for hope. Because depending on every four years who gets elected, it might be a very different feeling as to whether this is a hopeful next four years or a not so hopeful next four years. And so if you live and die as a government being the source of your hope, you need to recognize you've misplaced your priority. Because as we know, God says that government is merely a reflection of his authority. So government isn't an ultimate source of hope. What about to people? Could you look to other people and see them as a source of hope? Maybe you're longing for a spouse and a relationship that will get you through this life. Someone to get with and someone to stay with and be faithful to and to love and to share a life with. Maybe that is a source of hope. But ultimately, the best relationship, the most storybook love romance, ends with one or both people passing away. Because as hopeful as that is, as great as that might be, People don't live forever, and relationships don't last forever. So we can't ultimately look to people for hope because people pass away. Relationships come and they go. They last even less in, in terms of time than most governments do. And so lastly, what about the answer that our culture typically lands at? Our culture lands at look internally, but lastly, we could look to kindness. Can we look to general human kindness mutual respect for other religious beliefs, mutual respect for other moral standards as a source of hope. That the more generally kind everyone is and really all that religious organizations seek to do is to make everyone nicer to everybody else. And if, as a society, if we can reach this location of cerebral niceness to everybody, that somehow that will be a peaceful world, a peaceful land. Well, it's problematic because to be kind to everyone, to respect other worldviews, implies that those other worldviews might disagree with each other. So that's not a livable situation, first and foremost. But ultimately, we know from the answer to the first question, if we can't look internally at ourselves because of how wicked we are, why would we trust that everybody else is not just as bad? And a matter of fact, if you want kindness to be your answer, sleep with your door unlocked at night without security, 
without safety and see if that gives you comfort. Most people guard their investments. They guard their life because we know that we live in a world that is fallen, that is broken with unkind and with wicked people. So we can't look to any of these things as sources of hope. We can't look to government. We can't look internally. We can't look to kindness. What then is the response to this question? Where does my help come from? If you look with me in verse two, the psalmist answers and then spends the rest of the majority of the psalm unpacking the answer to that question. Verse two says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Not as, as soon as he answers the question, he gives credentials to who this God is. He says, my help comes from the Lord, that is Yahweh, covenant God of Israel. And then he follows it up by saying, who made heaven and earth? And the implication there is that not only does my help come from God, but unlike all these other things we've discussed, God made everything, who made heaven and earth, who made the fabric of reality and time and space and you and me. And this is the God who you can look to for hope because he's all powerful. He has sovereignty and total authority over this world. Why do we know that? Because he, unlike the pagan gods, made heaven and made earth. We can look a few different places here, but Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 11 is probably the best text on this. Jeremiah is addressing the people and he says, thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth they shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist to rise from the ends of the earth. There is a God and there are other gods. But there is only one who made heaven and earth and everything else is a fabrication and a lie. The gods who did not make the heavens and earth, they have no power. They are subject to the one true creator God who this psalmist addresses as Yahweh. He made heaven and earth and therefore he commands everything under the heaven and the earth as nothing is outside of his providence. Nothing stands outside of God's control. Even things that we can't wrap our heads around don't stand outside of God's control, and he works all things together for good. And that's what scripture tells us. But you'll notice, as the question is asked and the response is given, that this is an internal dialogue with the psalmist. He is preaching to himself. And you and I need to do the same. Daily asking and answering the question of where does my help come from? Where does my hope come from? What is my purpose in life? Look to God who's an unchanging source of purpose and hope, who is an unchanging source of strength and assurance. Because everything else changes, but God does not change. God is the source of hope. You need to preach this to yourself daily. He says his help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, who has universal and unbound power, all other powers, all other sources of strength are bound in some way. Governments are bound by time and by the finite nature of their borders. 
Human beings are bound by time and the finite nature of our influence on others. Money is bound by inflation. Governments are bound by other governments imposing on them. Everything else is bound. Every other power is bound. Even the pagan gods are bound by whatever they conceive them to be limited by, whether it's the fertile harvest or fertility or land or sea. Zeus is bound by the fact that he can't control the ocean. And all these other gods, all these other sources of strength are bound in some way, except for our unbounded God who controls heaven and earth because he made them. So he controls them. Not only, though, is this God an all-powerful God, but you'll see he is also a personal God. Not only is he all-powerful, but he cares. Look with me in verse 3. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In verses 3 and 4, the idea of God being that source of help is advanced. And the first place he says is God is all-powerful and, the beginning of verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. Meaning not only is he all-powerful, but he employs his power to sustain his people. Not only is he all-powerful, but he has your best interest in heart. And that doesn't often look how we think it looks. But the psalmist says, look to God who will not let your foot be moved. Look to a God who says that he keeps us. He employs his strength to sustain his people. Not only is he a creator with all authority, but he is a caring God who has a personal relationship with you and with me. He will not let your foot be moved. We're reminded then of Psalm 23, where it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The people of God do not stand on their own strength for this life. We don't stand on our own ability to uphold the law, our own ability to uphold morality. We stand on the strength of God who stands by our side. And so as, the, as David writes, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We also say we will fear no evil for it is God who will not let our foot be moved. And as a traveler on the Jerusalem road, as you're traveling through mountains, not letting your foot be moved is the difference between life and death. This is not merely stumbling and then get, picking yourself up. On a hilly place, stumbling could be the difference between life and death. This is the God who doesn't let your foot be moved against the temptations of this world. He will not let your foot to be moved against sickness and disease. And that there is nothing that can cause your foot to be moved, save that God allows it. And we take great comfort in that fact. And here we are assured that he will not let your foot be moved. This God walks with us through this life. He is the God who keeps us. And if you're wondering, how can we be sure that this God cares for us and keeps us? The idea in verse 4 is that he who keeps Israel is the one who keeps you. Meaning, if you want to know if God is reliable, look at his track record. Look at his history. Look at what he has done already. And then ask yourself the question, is the problem that you face bigger than that? The same God who takes Israel and leads them out of bondage to Egypt and into the wilderness and then keeps them alive in the wilderness for 40 years and then leads them into the promised land and then establishes them as an empire and then preserves them as a remnant and has kept them alive to this day. That is the God 
who says he watches over you and over me. That is the God. He is the keeper. He's the one who keeps Israel. Some of your translations might say he is the guardian of Israel or the protector. Keeper, guardian, protector, these are all English iterations of trying to understand this Hebrew word. He is the one who watches over the helper, the warrior for his people. And he cares deeply, but he is strong enough to also keep them. He's a dangerous God in the sense that he's not safe for those who are in opposition against his people, ask Pharaoh. But he is good and he has set his affections upon you, which means he keeps you. And he has a track record. He parted the Red Sea to make sure that his people were safe. He watched over Daniel in the lion's den when Daniel stood up against a, a wicked ruler and Daniel prays to God, trusting that God will keep him. He's the one who makes sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't get burned to death in the fiery furnace. Rather, instead, everyone else dies around them, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't even smell like fire when they come out of it. That's the God who watches over you. He's the one who strengthens Moses to lead a rebellious people to faithful obedience to God. This is the same God who rescues David, not once, not twice, but hundreds of times in his life. This is the same God who preserved the remnant through the Babylonian Empire, and that remnant remains today. And this is the same God who delivered Paul several times from the hands of the Roman Empire. This is the God who watches over you and over me. Which means we look not to us and insert ourselves into the stories of the Bible, but we look to the stories of the Bible, we see that they point to the character of God, and we see that that God is the same one who watches over us. Not that you and I are in those situations and that God will therefore watch us in the same way, but it is the same God who was present there, who is present now, who watches over us in the same way. And therefore his providence goes forward and he keeps us and he guards us. This is the one who keeps you and who keeps me. Jesus prays in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which is those who you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, those which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Jesus says he keeps his followers, and he prays on our behalf that the Father would keep us, and he guarantees that he will be with us to keep us through the Holy Spirit. And so we have not only God the Father who promises to be the keeper, but God the Son who is the keeper and God the Holy Spirit who remains on us as the keeper. All parts of the God had worked together to preserve the people of God. And not only is this God all-powerful, not only is this God personal, but this God, notice, doesn't slumber or sleep. Translation, he takes no time off. The most powerful government still has lapses in its watch. Crimes can still happen so long as no one is caught. But God, who protects his people, says he takes no time off. Nothing gets through. He doesn't say that he sometimes doesn't sleep or most of the time he's awake. It says he never slumbers. He never sleeps. He is all-watching, all-knowing, all-powerful, and personal. A few weeks ago, you might remember that there was a conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And one of the things that happened in that conflict, which was interesting, was thousands of missiles were launched between those two locations. And there, the Israelis have this security system called the Iron Dome. 
and this shoots other missiles out of the sky. And they were marveling over the fact that this Iron Dome shot down 90% of the missiles that came at its way. The problem is that 10% of the missiles that got through caused all of the damage that was on the news. 90% protection, best of the world's technology. And God says he has 100% coverage over you and over me. Meaning not one of the arrows of the enemy can get through. Meaning not one thing that God doesn't let through can get through. There's nothing that can push through his defense. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He takes no time off. If you want a picture of this, turn with me in your Bibles to, second, or to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. We get a picture here of how the pagans believed their gods were. Read with me in 1 Kings 18, and we'll look together starting in verse 27. So the setting here is that Elijah and the prophets of Baal are squaring off, and the, the, the basic contest is this. Whose god is the bigger god? That's the basic contest, okay? So we pick it up there. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. This is referring to Baal. And here Elijah mocks him and he says this. He says, either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. This is Elijah talking about Baal. Now, if you want to know why he's mocking them in this way, you have to look up a few verses. And you have to notice that in verse 26, the people, the prophets of Baal, begin to cut themselves and cry out, and they say, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around on the altar that they had made. But no one is listening, and no one's coming to help them. There are hundreds of prophets of Baal, all crying out, all prostrating themselves before this God. And Elijah, observing this, after a few hours, remarks, hey, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's just not listening right now. He might be as strong as you say he is, but his la he has now had a lapse in judgment. He's no longer watching or listening. And notice what happens when Elijah cries out to his God. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now, before we go on, notice Elijah's not crying out. He's not cutting himself. He's not freaking out. Elijah said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord he is God, the Lord, he is God. The point has been made. 
that regardless of whether Baal is powerful or not, there is a chink in his armor, namely, that sometimes, at least theologically, they can see Baal doesn't pay attention, or he's not always watching his people, which is a big deal because if you need him and he's not watching, it doesn't matter how strong or powerful he is. But the God over Israel is always watching. You don't need to grab his attention. He carefully watches after his people, so much so that although all of these demonstrations are being done by the prophets of Baal, he hears them not. Baal's not real, but he's not listening. The demons aren't listening. They can't fabricate anything. And Elijah just speaks, and a very powerful display of fire consuming rocks, dust, and water instantaneously happens. And so we have not only an all-powerful God, but a personal God, and then also a God who never slumbers and who never sleeps. In the book, The Iliad, which I had to read my senior year of college, one of the things that happens in the back and forth between that battle is it really depends who's winning, according to the storyteller, on which gods are in the fight at that moment in time. Sometimes Zeus is paying attention, sometimes other gods are paying attention. But the battle can shift and go back and forth depending on whether they're awake, asleep, paying attention, or locally located. Because sometimes the battle's going super well and then Zeus gets distracted for a while, and then the battle goes terribly for those people. Not because Zeus isn't, you know, powerful, but because sometimes he just takes time off. The God of Israel never takes time off. He never slumbers, he never sleeps, he never rests, he doesn't need to. And this is good for us because that is a hope, that is an assurance. When you're up late at night and crying out to God, he's listening. Noonday, on your lunch break, when you pray, he listens. When you're 20 years from now and you have to ask yourself the question, where does my help come from? Remember that God listens. He takes no time off, he's always listening, and he needs no rest. He's powerful, he's personal, and he's continuous. And then lastly, we get this picture of God, who is the keeper of Israel, that he is your keeper, and then it's going to expand this idea further in verse 5. It says, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Why? because the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. In Exodus 13, God actually does this. In Exodus 13, verse 21, the Lord goes before the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night he goes by as a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So although this might seem like he's just saying by day and by night, God's going to do this. Remember, God actually did this. And just before that, he said, it's the same God who watched Israel that watches you. And then he uses poetic language to say, remember the, the cloud by day and the pillar by night? That's the God. He got Israel through the wilderness. He's the same one who can do that same thing today. As Spurgeon says, we as Christians are not put under a new sun or a new moon to exist in this life, but rather the strength of the sun and the moon to smite us has been stripped away. We don't live in a new world apart from the non-believers, apart from the powers of this world. But the powers of this world have no strength to smite us down. 
because God has removed their strength. If the sun can't strike you and the moon can't strike you, then what can strike you? The rays of the sun can't get to you unless God providentially says, go ahead. And everything going through God's filter of protection. And God is good, which means that everything gets through has a purpose. There's nothing that happens apart from God's plan. And he's so powerful that he can even prevent the sun from shining on you if he wants to. To protect you. Because he's good. Because he's God. He is the shade on your right hand. And this Father God of the Israelite people is the same as Jesus Christ the Son. And we know this because in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus uses this same poetic language about the shade to lament over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here Jesus, sharing a heart with the Father, says that he would have been the shade around the city if they were willing. He would have been the hen that gathers her chicks underneath and protects them and shelters them and shades them from all things that could come under them. But rather they rejected him. And so the shade, remember, is only extended to the people of God. The protection is not a universal protection for anybody. It's for the people of God. And Jesus is that shade of protection ultimately. You see, physical things can strike you down, sickness can get to you, but ultimately the thing that matters is that your life be preserved, your everlasting life. Meaning you can experience physical death, but as long as you never experience spiritual death, you're okay, you're kept till the end. Because Jesus can raise you from the dead and give you a new body and a glorified soul. So we know that the Father and the Son work together in this protection. The Holy Spirit currently oversides or presides over his church so that the sun cannot strike us by day nor the moon strike us by night. And this then is the answer, the response to that question. We, see, we saw the question, where does our hope come from? We saw the response. It comes from the creator God who's all-powerful, who's personal, who loves you, who keeps you, who never sleeps, who's got a strong track record. And then lastly, the psalmist is not content to leave the question here. He's rather going to continue it forward by giving us a promise to look towards. So we saw the question, the response, and now the promise. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord will keep you. Not only does the Lord keep you currently, but he will keep you. His protection is ongoing for his people. The Lord will keep you. That's the promise. That's the assurance. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe this promise to be true? Do we believe that he will keep us? Do we believe that he is reliable according to his word? What does it mean for the Lord to keep us from all evil? What does it mean that he will keep our life? We have to recognize that in a fallen world, we can, we can acknowledge the fact that pain and suffering and evil are experienced by Christians. 
that we partake in and are victims of these kinds of tragedies, that sin still abounds in this world. So what does it mean when it says the Lord will keep us from all evil? It seems like if we have a misconception that he's already failed on this promise. But as Derek Kidner, who's one of the commentators of the psalm, says, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but rather a well-armed one. It does not imply a cushioned life, but rather a well-armed one. God does not keep his people by his wisdom. He's decided this. He does not keep his people by removing them from this world. He does not keep his people by putting a hedge of protection around them and never letting them taste danger. He doesn't protect his people by immediately removing all sin from their life. How then does he keep his people from all evil? By constantly arming them to the teeth with every resource they would need to make it. He arms them to the teeth. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the body of believers. He gives us his living word as a roadmap for this life. And then he gives us constant access to him through prayer. We have every weapon in the arsenal that we would need to make it. And that's how he keeps us from all evil. He says, if evil faces you, you can resist it. You can fight it. Why? Not because you're particularly strong, but because I, I am. And you have to look to me as a source of strength. How does he keep us from all evil? Well, the, the next statement, he will keep your life, explains that. And remember that Jesus says that if you want to keep your life, your temporal life, you will lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life, you will gain it. That's Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 24, I would like you to turn there with me. John 12, 24. This is the quote of Jesus on what it means for him to keep your life. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. That grain of wheat is talking about you and me, our lives. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's unsprouted. But... If it dies, it bears much fruit. If the grain of wheat enters the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. How is that possible? Well, when the grain of wheat dies, you just follow the analogy, that when the grain of wheat dies, it rots, and the seed produces a plant. And that plant is similar to the seed, but it is bigger than the seed, it can draw resources from the dirt, and it becomes this massive tree. And the Christian life is much the same. If you hang on to your physical body such that you don't want it to pass away, you don't want it to die, that's where your hope resides. He's saying that that cuts short what the seed is capable of. But if it dies when you and I die, it bears much fruit. The Christian enters into a glorified body, into a perfect body that has no sickness, no, no brokenness from this world, no death, no pain, perfect ability to sense and see and perceive. You don't have any of the ailments that you currently have in your body. You see, remember when we were talking earlier about where does our help come from? And you can look to all the world's offerings for where does your help come from. Think about what the world has to offer you in terms of protecting your physical body. It can prolong your life. 
It can maybe make some betterments of your health, but ultimately science is still powerless to many terminal diseases, many terminal illnesses, and regardless of what it can do on that front, it still can't prevent death from happening. But God says he preserves our life, he keeps us in such a way so that he lets us physically die and then gives us better than we could ever hope for bodies. So that the martyrs in the early church could face death being burned at the stake, being guillotined, being hanged upside down, being crucified. And they could with joy go to those deaths and those ends because they believed this promise that he keeps you from all evil and he keeps your life. Which means when you die and you suffer temporary pain, he gives you a glorified body and a sinless existence. And that is the promise. That is how he keeps us from all evil. Not by removing us, but by arming us and by promising us a future hope. And then lastly, the promise continues in verse 8. It says, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Those two opposite statements, your going out and your coming in, those pair of opposites imply that everything in between is also covered. It's a poetic use of language. We actually saw it earlier in verse 6, that the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Same idea. The point is, you're going out and you're coming in. He guards both of those things. Your birth and your death, he guards both of those things. Everything in between, also covered by God. He keeps you for your whole life, the whole expanse of your existence. He keeps you. And not only does he keep you for the expanse of your life, he says also from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus sends out his disciples in Matthew 28, and he says, Go therefore, make disciples, for I am with you even to the end of the age. Remember, he doesn't send them out without hope, without strength. He sends them out with assurance that from this time forth and forevermore, he is with them. And that is how the Christian travels through this life, travels through this existence. Not in vain hope, not for some vague future promise, but for an assured promise that we can look to his history to prove. We can look to our current experience of God's faithfulness in our life. And he says, trust me, it never expires. It never expires. This time forth and forevermore. And as many of the, the commentators say at this point, it's really hard to decide which one of those two is the more comforting. That he's with us from this time forth or that he's with us forevermore. Which of those two is a better promise? I'll let you wrestle with that through this week. Both of them are beautiful promises and it is going to be tough to decide which is better. That he is with you right now as you face sin, as you face temptation, as you face suffering or that he promises that it'll always be like that that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he is with you from now until eternity past. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good, good heavenly father. And it is on the basis of your faithfulness to us that we long to worship you. We long to sing out about your glories and about your goodness. Lord, I pray that we as a people would in some sense, be empowered by your spirit to better worship you as we move forward in our life. As we move forward this week, as we move forward even into the next minute of being able to sing and join voices to praise you, that you would allow us some ability to praise you better. Lord, we know that we are limited by sin, by brokenness, 
by our own inabilities. And so Lord, we, we pray that you would throw off all of those old things, not for our sake, but so that we could bring a better voice of worship to you. The worship that you are worthy of, the worship that would best glorify you. And so we long for that. We pray for that, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray that you would remind us tomorrow morning of that same truth. Amen.